Hey guys, um, so it's been a very crazy time in the world um, over the last few weeks and um, we haven't been able to record the best quality of audio, which I really, really apologize for. Um, and we thought that we'd bring back some really, really relevant um, content from past episodes that we think um, could really, really um, help entrepreneurs navigate this time. So this interview that you're hearing um, was previously broadcast um, in late 2019. And it's with um, Wizza, who is a really, really um, thoughtful person in terms of um, what startups should be, how they should work, how they should build, and the real social issues that African entrepreneurs specifically um, face in, in navigating the um, global ecosystem of entrepreneurship, but also what it looks like navigating the ecosystem within their respective countries. This is a really, really great episode, and I hope you enjoy it. Thank you for listening. Um, stay safe, stay connected, um, and stay at home. Hello, and welcome to the Mass Startup Podcast. This is a podcast for Africa's opportunity seekers, problem solvers, future shapers, world builders, and entrepreneurs, hosted by me, Mashudu Mudal. Every week, we will use this podcast as a platform to encourage, empower, and educate young people in Africa on entrepreneurship and business. Hope you enjoy this next episode. I am being tested by technology right now. (laughs) How many times do you think we've tried to start this? Three, four. Okay. Yeah. Now is the real start. I promise. Okay. Cool. Because the, the the thing is doing the right thing on the on the laptop. All right. Um, it looks good. It's bouncing the right way. Um, so we've decided to record um, the new series of episodes in really interesting and, and fascinating spaces across Joburg. I think Joburg, we don't appreciate how amazing it is, um, the spaces that it has, the people that it has. Um, consequently, or. Uh, What's the word? Um, ironically, my guest is not from Joburg. He's not even from South Africa. He's not even from Southern Africa. <laughs> well, uh, kind of, yeah. Not I was really. Born in Malawi, so. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm not gonna. Uh, I'm not gonna mess it up. So I'm, I'm, I'd rather you uh, do a young intro for me. Um, so who are you, Wizza? Uh, that's a question I ask myself every day. <laughs> I, I, also, I ask myself that a lot as well. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, my name is Wiza Jalakasi. Um, I'm from Malawi. Um, I identify as a technology entrepreneur. So I'm, I'm, I'm branding myself these days. Um, yeah, I, I try to find new and exciting ways of making technology more relevant for Africans, and I think that that is closely tied to, to my life's purpose. Um, yeah, that's me in a nutshell. What do you think your life's purpose is? Jeez, we're going like straight to like yeah, the yeah. serious stuff. Yeah. Okay, cool. Uh, that's a nice one. Honestly, I think I'm here to make aviation safer. Um, I, I feel a very unique kind of pain every time I hear about an aviation accident. Um, I don't feel that type of pain in any other scenario ever. Uh, I've never felt it anywhere else in my whole life, so I'm, I'm thoroughly convinced that I need to get rid of that pain. Like, that's the universe signaling to me that, like, hey, this is your problem to solve. 
Um, so yeah, I think uh, I, need, I need a few years to do what I want to do. I'm going to start an aviation safety company probably in the next 10 years or so um, to solve that problem. Uh, but in between now and then, there are certain steps that I need to execute upon to give myself the, the best chance of trying. Yeah. Has it always been aviation for you? Has there been other interests? How do you... Let, Actually, I think we're jumping like years and years of, of experience and context. <laughs> yeah. How do you get introduced to technology in Malawi? Yeah, so um, my dad used to buy and sell computers from South Africa, um, bringing, importing them into Malawi, setting them up, and then reselling them uh, locally. So um, he did that for a number of years um, when, I was, when I was really young, toddler. Um, and I would see him bring in these strange machines like put in these diskettes inside and press things on the keyboard. And I, was, I got really curious. So I started following him um, on those journeys. How old were you at this point? Uh, probably like around seven, seven to... Around seven is when he started, I think. Yeah. So between the ages of seven and 12, I remember this being a very consistent theme um, throughout my life. So yeah, I got really into it, started watching him, started helping him set up some of the computers, you know, loading up Windows 95, Windows 98 came out, we had CD-ROMs, 3D cards, oh, I was losing my mind. <laughs> <laughs> like I was there geeking out on, on, on all this tech and stuff. Um, and yeah, I got super into it. I started writing code when I was 10, programming in basic. Wait, uh, was like, wait, wait, wait. <laughs> So you started programming. Like, what were you trying to build at that point? Nothing, nothing. Just like, there was this, there was this basic program. So you'd load it up um, on, on a Windows 95 machine, and you could, like, write basic commands on the terminal, like, basic scripts. So the first thing I built, I remember, was some, like, color thing. You know, change the, the color of the screen and whatever else. And then started getting into, like, if-else logic, um, trying to build, like, a chatbot. It would, like, ask you, what is your name? You'd enter your name, and then it would print out your name and all these things. So, you know, I didn't, I, I, I was just, that was just me having fun. It's like, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's a different kind of fun, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know. Uh, I think at that age, I was not, I did not care about <laughs> computers. I didn't care about much else because, um, you know, that was, that was the environment that I was in. Um, I think I, I was not the most socially adept child, so I uh, really struggled to make friends and make connections. Um, even till today, still do. Um, but like, you know, the tech stuff always got me curious. Uh, when I would get like toys um, for my birthday, for example, I would have them for one day and the next day I'm taking everything apart, trying to figure out like how does this thing work, reconnecting things, motors, whatever. It was a time that we, uh, me and my little brother attached, um, um, uh, what, what do you call these, fireworks. Okay, we removed the, the, the explosive bit of the firework, but only remained with the propellant, and then attached the propellant onto like a remote-controlled car. <laughs> no. <laughs> this is danger. See, this is the kind of fun I was having. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, stuff like that, man. So I, I guess I was just always a curious kid, and uh, I, I have this like deep curiosity around how does this thing work? Someone should not just show me something and this is how this thing works. I want to know like, what are the things that are happening inside the thing for the thing to be the thing, you know? And, yeah, that's kind of how I got into it. Um, yeah. That's, so that's what was the sort of um, progression from, say, when you're 10 and you're just playing around with basic and stuff like that to, say, about 20 years old, you know, going through high school, going into varsity and stuff like that? Yeah. What's the progression and the journey that you went through there through technology? Yeah, so I think, yeah, it was always a, a pretty central part of my life. I think from ages, when I was about 15, um, my parents got me this uh, Sony Walkman phone, W700i, I'll never forget. 
uh, it was cutting edge at the time. Uh, camera. This is the one that come, came with like the exciting colors. Yeah, yes. Yeah, I remember colors, this. Earphones. I remember uh, this. Yeah, I had Java games. I had all these crazy things, man. And um, I remember seeing one. Like my, my cousin had gotten one earlier, and I was like, no, I need this thing. And I waited for three months, and then they got it for me. And that that's when I think my curiosity really took off. Um, around the, that same time, the, for the first time ever in Malawi, we had mobile internet. So Airtel Malawi had just launched like GPRS. This is like the E type. Yeah, this yeah. is the E. Yeah, yeah. It's funny that at the time <laughs> that was breakthrough. Dude, like now if you see E, yeah, you just get you're getting angry because <laughs> E means empty. There's nothing, <laughs> right? But at the time, it, it was, was like yeah, breakthrough. It, it was, was like game changing. It was like this is incredible. It was nuts. And like uh, I remember, Airtel had a special where they were testing the the, the E network, right? Um, the Edge network, and they would uh, give you three weeks of free internet for every new SIM card. So every three weeks, I would just buy a new SIM card and I would stay online. And like I learned so much in that time. Um, taught myself how to build websites. Got involved in an open source like um, Sony Ericsson modding community. So we started like really modding everything out of these phones. One thing I didn't like about the phone when I got it was that um, there wasn't enough bass with my earphones. With the earphones that it came with, it wasn't enough bass. Mm. So you know what? I guess. I was typically supposed to do is find different earphones, but I was like, no, why don't we rewrite the audio drivers for these phones and tweak the bass? <laughs> that is mad. I know, right? Like, and at the time, I didn't realize the significance. It was just like, ah, okay, I'm solving the problem the best way I know how. So, you know, um, got really, really into it, started like writing tutorials on how to mod certain types of characteristics on these phones. Um, this was an online community called Sense. And like by the time I was leaving, I had written like over six guides. I had like thousands of posts on various topics. I was um, one of the most respected members of the community. And it was like a community of over 100,000 people all over the world um, doing various things. And um, there we were, like, you know, sort of like thought leading in the space. Um, we, we had screenshots. Like before Screen Munch on BlackBerry, we could take screenshots on our phones. And we wrote, we wrote the firmware. Like, oh my God, it was nuts. Like, we had so much fun writing all these different patches, uh, making them open source, sharing with the rest of the world. Um, so, a lot of my high school years were like this. Um, at school, I would just like sort of exist, just be there, uh, academically pass. But I didn't really have much of a, a social circle, like just a few number of friends, and then go back home. Uh, most of my friends were on the internet, <laughs> mm. you know, so and some of them are still friends to this day, you know. Um, people have been very uh, impactful in shaping me as a person today. Um, now, towards like 16, 17, uh, it dawned on me that like, you know, um, nerdy was becoming cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, nerdy was becoming Isn't cool. Isn't that crazy? <laughs> yeah. I think about, you know, 10, 15 years ago, like being on the internet all the time wasn't... Like, it wasn't amazing. Yeah. Being on the internet now all the time is the most important thing you for a lot of people. And, yeah. like, seeing how cool it's become to be online, to create brands, to build products, to create through digital means has just become the most important thing. Yeah. Uh, I think, like, we've now become digital natives. Um, previously, we weren't. We were still transitioning from a very... Um, physically oriented world. Um, I think there's, there's there's pluses and minuses to that. Like you can see how in today's world, like I was on the how train from the airport and I was coming in, um, everyone's just looking down on their phone. No one's gonna like say hi to you. Uh, it's just like wow, we have really become that 
dystopian society that's described in science fiction novels from the the 80s and 70s. Yeah. And it's just like what? Yeah. So, but yeah, you know, that around then I realized that there was some value in this. So I um, registered my first business with a friend of mine. Um, we're doing like you know general IT consultancy, um, web development, um, just you know hacking together everything that we could. Uh, also built a mobile music website, Malawi's first mobile music website called MW Tunes. Still alive to this day. You can check it what? out. Yeah, what? Well, what, what was on there? Music. So we artists. Is it good come, music? You know, artists would come and like submit their content to us, and we'd make it available. For I'm gonna them. change the 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 <laughs> intro for this. You're gonna download a song for me. I'm gonna change the intro. Yeah. To whatever song you choose. Okay. Cool. <laughs> put it on here. There's so much good stuff on that side. Um, yeah, it was nice, and you know, I kind of, that kind of like got me socially recognized. So for the first time, I was like, kind of like you know, cool. One of the cool kids, I was known for something. So I'd have artists calling me up, like, "Yo, I want my music on your site." It actually became a problem. So what we used to do is, um, I used to work out of my friend's internet cafe uh, at the time, and people would just come over, and then we would rip their CDs and upload their stuff, and like it, w- it wasn't scaling. We'd have like ten people sitting in the lobby, and then like my friend's mom is looking at me like what's going on here <laughs> so we set up an upload form but then we couldn't curate the co- quality of content and uh, it was it was a, it was an interesting scenario these are problems yeah yeah it was like oh my gosh and this was like you know, around 16 17 i've still got school i'm running this thing um i remember at our peak we had 30,000 unique visitors from malawi every month and i went to to tnm which is like the the leading telco at the time and i went to the the marketing manager's office like one day i just walked up to the office I go to the marketing manager's office. I go to the reception, and I'm like, hey, can I see the marketing manager? And then they're like, okay, what do you want? And I explain my idea, and, and they look at me, and it's like, okay, there's this kid. He's in oversized uh, shirts, baggy jeans, really good sneakers. <laughs> and for some reason, they let me in, and they let me into this guy's office. So I woke up to him, and I said, like, hey, man, I've got this website. Uh, we have 30,000 unique visitors a month. Uh, I want to sell you guys ads. Um, I want 1.5 million kwacha for us to start the conversation. And, you know, I was very confident at the time. <laughs> and, and this gentleman just, was... Just for context, how much is this 1.5 million I don't even know. In rands? Uh, what would let you me, say? Let me, let, me, let me convert it to today's money. Um, I would say in rands, at 62,000 rands. So you walk into <laughs> this guy's office, baggy jeans, and you're a kid. Yeah. And you like, look, I want 62,000 rand. Yeah. Like, is it a lot in Malawi? Yes, it was. It was. A, it was. A, but that money would have changed my life. It would have sorted out my internet issues, my computer <laughs> issues. <laughs> like, so I thought life was simple. I, was, I thought I was special. I thought I had built something amazing. So I, I go into this guy's office, and he was generous enough to explain to me why that was not realistic. Okay. Um, and what he, did he say exactly? No, no. He laughed at first. You know, like he laughed, and then he was. He asked, like, "Who are you? Like, what's your story?" How did you get here? And I explained all this to him, and then he's like, "Okay, cool. That's that's really nice and impressive. It's a great story. However, uh, this is real life, and uh, this is how these things work. You know, we buy ads primarily in traditional media. We target millions of views. Thirty thousand is nothing. So if it's thirty thousand, like you know, we can only do very little. And even then, we want to brand the whole thing in our colors and all those. So I was too proud, and I said, "No, you can't. You can't brand in our colors." And I walked away extremely frustrated and angry at the guy. I didn't talk to him for two years. Then <laughs> I eventually did call him back at some point. Did you understand the value of brands and owning your own copyright and no, your own no, identity? No, no, nothing like that. So why why was it an issue that he wanted to brand it in their colors? And because it was my thing. I think it was an ego thing. Like you know, this was mm. my thing. I, I had worked so hard to build it, um, and I wanted it 
to remain mine. Um, so yeah, you know, but that was a learning experience. Uh, I then got, I then like, I, that like sparked something in me to, to understand the economic side of, you know, technology. Um, it's not enough to just write really nice code. Like you need to actually turn it into a business. And then I think since then I have devoted um, my life towards uh, building that muscle um, in various ways. And yeah, I did that for a very long time. Got into full-time web development after that. Uh, by the time I was 19, I built websites for several government entities, including the Malawi police. <laughs> at what? Point, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you went from um, building a, a product to just change your screen color yeah. as a kid, and then building out this music website that almost, that you tried to monetize through your telco, yeah. to building websites for the Malawi police. Yeah. <laughs> In That's years. a wild journey. <laughs> <laughs> no, but you know, the great thing is, I think uh, what I have that a lot of people have, I've now learned didn't have is like this really incredible support system in terms of like family. So uh, my parents are always my first investors. Um, if I was to talk about how much of their money I've lost on this podcast, it's going to have to be a two-part series. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, you know, I'm fortunate and I'm really grateful for that. Like, That's really powerful. That, yeah. It's really, really powerful. Give me a so have they been like not just supportive in terms of saying, hey, you really are good at what you do and like we're going to support money. you emotionally, but like putting, putting money, money into yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, putting in money. So, like, What did that mean for you? It means to it, have the money in, you know, being given to you, yeah. and saying, "Hey, you've got an idea. I have to make it happen with the money that I took from my parents." Yeah. So you know, it. it at first, um, I didn't realize the significance of it, but after I had failed several times, um, I tried once to do a, I wouldn't call it an NGO, but it was a developmental initiative um, where people would create positive content and we would do like shows and concerts and whatever else. <laughs> And one of the hardest days, I think, in my life today was telling the one person that I had hired. This was a much older lady. I think she was, like, 29, 28, with her own, like, family situation. And, like, I can't afford to pay you anymore. Um, but, yeah, like, initially it was just, ah, okay, they're giving me money to try things. Then I realized, like, the cost of that at some point and how hard it would have been if I didn't have those resources. And then I became a lot more careful and measured um, about things. The last time I think my parents invested in me was right after university. Um, I needed to move back to Nairobi. I studied in Nairobi. Mm. I needed to move back to Nairobi to do a startup with my co-founder. And, you know, we had on paper a commitment for $30,000 in seed money, but I needed to move immediately. So, like, I go to my parents and I say, like, hey, guys, I need $3,000. Um, they moved mountains to make that happen, like, made a lot of personal sacrifices, denied themselves a lot of uh, good things. But, like, you know, a week later, I was on a plane one way to Nairobi, um, moved into a new apartment, furnished everything, and, you know, started on this journey. Uh, even that startup didn't work out, but like it, it taught me a lot. I think. <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna get into like that startup journey, like yeah. the professional stuff. Um, I think we're just gonna take a pause for a bit. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Um, so we can just go into sort of your startup journey and the journey you've gone through um, building businesses. Like, what what was the first real startup you feel like you started out with? Um, the still the the mobile music. Um, one, though I wasn't experienced enough to run it, so I was like severely underqualified to be the CEO or something like that. Aren't all CEOs severely underqualified? Uh, yes and no, but like you know, you grow into it. But I don't think I had a chance. I was like, it was way, I was way out of my depth. Um, so 
when I, when I was in uni, final year of university, um, I was an intern at the the university's incubator program, and um, I co-founded another market, startup in market research this time with um, one of my classmates. Um, and yeah, that was that was really the first time I felt like um, I was doing this for real. Uh, it felt very grown up. <laughs> so we we were trying to do a survey for rewards model. Um, plenty of other businesses have tried this now. Um, and our differentiator was that we were rewarding people with mobile money, which was big in Kenya and East Africa, um, particularly vis-a-vis -vis the rest of the continent. So yeah, that was an interesting thing. We I joined late 2014, um, final year, uh, trying to graduate, but also trying to run a startup, but also trying to get funding. But you know, we we worked hard and we got lucky. We got into, accepted into um, an accelerator run by Savannah Fund. They're one of the funds on the continent here, and that really opened up a ton of doors for us in terms of like um, opportunity, access to markets access to capital, finally had money, so, you know, life was good. Um, oh, yeah, life is, life is really good as a startup that has money. Yes, 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 when you're funded, you, know, you don't have to worry <laughs> about paying rent, you just have to focus on, like, building things. But I think we were also, like, overwhelmed because we had access to too many resources. So we had, like, $10,000 in hosting credits every month from IBM Software. So you go from, like, you know, developing things that you need to pushing the limits of what's possible given what you have and that like you know ended up being a really big distraction and in, in the end we couldn't make the startup work um, I ended up resigning for it from it it was a very painful decision um, I had to resign and go back go back to Malawi so I moved from Malawi to Kenya then back to Malawi then to Kenya <laughs> and then like moved back again ah it was really painful uh, but you know around then I think I had learned a lot of lessons and built my network I feel like you have uh uh, a pan-African view that most South African entrepreneurs just don't get, right? So a lot of us, our view is very South Africa and very little anywhere else. Yeah. Um, we don't get exposed to, say, um, doing business in Nairobi, doing business in Malawi, you know. Yeah. And doing business across the continent um, and making those connections like, how advantageous is that for you to be able to go South Africa, Malawi, um, Kenya, Kenya Tanzania, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Tanzania? Yeah. It's useful. Like, um, I, I learned this the hard way. South Africa is a different place. It's, it's not like the rest of Africa in many different ways. It has a very unique um, social and structural context that um, is very different from the rest of the continent. So it's not necessarily... Um, it's not necessarily the same um, in, in, in many different ways. Um, so yeah, like it's been useful. Um, there's, I think, a different nature of opportunities um, outside of South Africa. But South Africa in itself is quite attractive as a market because of um, the, the power of the middle class. So there's quite a bit of spending power within the middle class. There's a mature banking and financial payment system. There's a credit at scale. So you can build things that people can consume um, much more easily than you can find a market for those types of consumables uh, in, in um, the rest of the continent, unfortunately. So it's got its pluses and uh, minuses. But yeah, I think it's, it's super useful to just try 
what's out there. Though I think a lot of South African companies fail to scale into the rest of the continent, and a lot of companies from the rest of the continent, um, the sub-Saharan region particularly, fail to scale into South Africa. But you know, there are similarities between markets like South Africa and Egypt, same thing, where mature card infrastructure, credit is kind of a thing, and there's a middle class, there's money, um, so yeah. Um, it depends on what you're trying to do, and there's an environment for everything. But I, I wish more South Africans would spend time to learn about what's out there because um, South Africa is not the center of the universe. I agree. <laughs> As a South African, I agree. I completely agree. Yeah. I think we, we, we get lost in our bubble. Yeah, and yeah. And we decide that, oh no, there's, there's nothing else out there. Yeah. And, you know, I've, 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 I, I count not being able to go to different countries and learn about the ecosystems that exist for entrepreneurs, for startups, for funding, and all those different things, I count it as a failure that I haven't experienced it outside of South Africa. Mm. Because it's just like, I know there's so much more across the continent and learning about what is happening everywhere else could possibly help me um, build better, get smarter, maybe even become more innovative as well. Yeah, uh, I think, I wouldn't call it a failure as such, but maybe the opportunity hasn't presented itself yet, which I'm sure it will in due time. Take me to Africa. <laughs> take, me to, take me to Nairobi, yeah. take me to Malawi, so there's, take there's me to... this thing of like, take me to Africa, but boss, we're in Africa. <laughs> <laughs> that's a South African thing. Yeah, I, know, I just like did the South African thing. Yeah, so that hap- that's like the third or fourth time I've ever heard that. Like, <laughs> I understand, it's like, uh, it's a cultural thing, I guess, but yeah, there's, there's, there's a ton going on out there and for those who get the chance, like uh, it's worth trying. Like East Africa's ecosystem is quite sophisticated. There's some services that are more sophisticated in East Africa than they are here in South Africa. Um, but yeah, I think. Give me an example of something like that. Like courier services. Uh, oh yeah. yeah in on-demand couriers like Glovo, Uber Eats. There's more like on-demand delivery services in Nairobi than there are in Joburg, and they're always up and down. And you can you can you can do so much from your phone. Uh, access to instant credit from your phone. Uh, I think it's incredible to seeing what money, mobile money has done yeah. in countries like that. Yeah, and uh, you know it can only work where there's a gap of, a, of the financial purpose that um, the card-led credit system in South Africa, for example, fills in. So in the rest of the continent, that isn't there, and mobile money has been able to take off. Um, they're trying to relaunch mobile money in South Africa. Uh, I'm not very sure whether that will take off because there's already an existing solution. But yeah, we'll see where, we'll see where things go and uh, what's doable. So. What's, what's your assessment of the ecosystem in terms of entrepreneurship, in terms of funding, in terms of development, in terms of support for entrepreneurs and startups across the continent? Right, so um, I'd like to start by differentiating um, between two ecosystems that I think I'm cognizant of. Um, the first is the traditional entrepreneurship ecosystem. So these are like startups in the sense of starting up a business for the first time, um, but you know, very likely it's either a traditional type of business or maybe a technology-enabled but traditional type of business uh, in the most uh, simplest of the sense. And then there's the startup ecosystem that refers to startups as um, technology-enabled businesses that are existing with the purpose of finding a scalable and repeatable business model that strongly leverages the technology to achieve that scale. Um, This is like the classic Silicon Valley, Paul Graham-type definition. And those two ecosystems are distinct. So South Africa has uh, a very vibrant ecosystem for both. But um, from my exposure, and my exposure could be limited, uh, I mean, I've been to 
maybe 19, 20 African countries and done business in most of them, but still my exposure is quite limited. Um, I, w I would say that South Africa has got both ecosystems, but the rest of the continent usually, from my view, tends to have the tech ecosystem only in, in as far as what people are talking about and what's exposed on social media and etc. But I see that the entrepreneurship ecosystem in South Africa is quite vibrant and quite robust, where there is an actual ecosystem. People share stories. Um, people are not afraid to, to share experiences. There are different ways to get access to capital. The, the social structure permit um, you being able to raise some sort of seed investment from your, your family, friends, uh, supporters, and co. And that isn't yet there for most of the continent outside of the context of technology. So entrepreneurs in the rest of the continent doing traditional businesses are starting out from scratch and mostly on their own. If they don't have access to credit or other forms of institutional capital, then um, it becomes very difficult for them to, to do anything. So I think South Africa has a lot going on, but then also because the baseline that South Africans have set for themselves is so high, uh, perhaps they don't take um, into consideration what is actually already here. Um, I think if you were to throw a bunch of South African entrepreneurs into the rest of the continent, they might struggle to to do the same things that they do here because the conditions are very different. And by some measure, things are easier to do here in South Africa than outside of the continent. But you also have this very tangible um, constraints that are imposed by the complicated political history of South Africa as a nation. Um, apartheid wasn't that long ago. And till today, it's very clear and tangible the ways in which um, South Africa has some way to go in healing and reconciling those uh, unfortunate differences. Yeah. yeah. Um, so when I look at just what you've just discussed, um, I think about traditional business in Africa being, you know, subsistence businesses mainly. Mm. You know, people that are just side hustlers. Yeah. Uh, people that are you know hawkers on the street, starting a car, starting a you know a little food you know store or something like that. Um, do you think there's just too little information or just like too little coverage of the successes from that perspective, from a traditional business versus a tech? I feel, I feel like the tech businesses and the tech startup scene, it just has so much better PR around yeah, it. Yeah. And like everyone's so focused on it, mainly because of the massive amount of investment in people to show that this is something that you should be doing yeah. versus traditional, which is seen as more boring, yeah. more... It doesn't sell page views. Exactly. <laughs> no, I 100% agree. A lot of it is hype. And, um, you know, because, because tech is hot globally, the five biggest companies in the world by market capitalization right now um, are technology companies. So everyone gets excited at every new innovation. Everything's the next Google, the next Facebook, the next Amazon. And it is mostly hype. Um, but, you know, that's, that's, that's a consequence of where we are now as a technology ecosystem in Africa. I think, like, some of the best untold stories are around what... Um, women business owners across sub-Saharan Africa um, are doing for themselves. So um, women in sub-Saharan Africa are usually the champions of village savings and loans associations. I think they're called Stockvilles here. Yep. Yeah. There's some variation of this thing everywhere across the continent. 
and the type of resources they're able to pull together and support each other's businesses with are uh, quite incredible and quite commendable. But again, like you say, because the stories may not be as exciting or as compelling, or maybe um, as a continent we have a bias against or towards certain types of things, those stories are not getting told. But if somebody was to do some, some really detailed research, I'm quite confident that they would find that quite a lot of money moves in these spaces, quite a lot of businesses are built on this um, social structure around the SLAs. And it's exciting to see. Like. Um, a lot of women are getting themselves out of difficult economic situations by starting businesses with capital provided by other women in the context of a fully social structure. And it's only now that these are being formalized and some of them are becoming banks and microfinance institutes. And it's really quite exciting to see. Um, I think there are so many variations of this. Uh, when you go into like rural parts of the continent, you find some social structures that are designed to support entrepreneurship in some way. So. Even like in the village, uh, for example, the chief might uh, be in charge of some donor-led development initiative where people are putting together ideas, and then those ideas, they sit down, discuss which ones are viable, and then source development funding for them, even in very small amounts, but then they're able to sustain themselves. Um, I guess we as the middle class in Africa take for granted um, the reality that we live in um, with our iPhones and MacBooks. Um, but the rest of the continent, yeah, there's a lot going on that isn't being covered in the news and it's unfortunate, but it makes sense if you look at the incentives that these storytellers have. So looking at things that aren't really, you know, talked about enough, so you're always seeing a lot of coverage around, you know, this startup raised this much money, um, that startup raised that much money, but you never understand, like, I feel like there's not enough coverage on how this funding actually comes about, right? Yeah. What are the types of funding that are actually available to startups, um, whether in traditional businesses or in sort of tech businesses? What do you look at, how do you look at the landscape right now in terms of funding, in terms of you know, venture capital, whatever it is, um, across the continent as well? Yeah, so I think the, the, the vast majority of capital that's accessible to most entrepreneurs is very likely grant funding, uh, especially at early stage without you having any real tangible business. And there are an astonishing amount of grant opportunities that are available. Um, Please explain grant funding for some. <laughs> okay, so this is where an organization um, will essentially give you money to build a business or, an or, or your own organization that meets certain objectives. But grant funding is... is um, it's discouraging for some entrepreneurs because of the administrative overhead that comes with it. So first of all, like um, you know, for most grants, there's a ton of paperwork and you need to be extremely thorough and detailed in presenting your plan and articulating it in a way that a lot of entrepreneurs probably have the capacity to learn how to do, but just won't for reasons I, I don't fully understand. Um, and then also when you have the money, there's this discipline that is required in managing it. So you find that like uh, a lot of first-time entrepreneurs really struggle to separate the business's money from their own money. Um, and things like that just don't fly in a grant environment. And at the application stage, the people who award these grants can usually tell whether you're that type of person or not. So uh, a lot of grant funding is available, but we're not tapping into it because we don't have the discipline um, to manage it and also the, the persistence required to see the grant application from end to end. But it's by far the easiest and the cheapest in the sense that you don't have to give up ownership of your company. Um, then there's other options like venture capital, for example, um, not suitable for most types of businesses because... Again, I'm going to need you to break it <laughs> break down. down. Venture We're going to break it down. Okay, so 
what is venture capital? Venture capital is uh, capital injected into um, promising high growth businesses from a revenue perspective that can return um, significantly on the investment, like a, a really crazy multiple, like 10x, 15x, 50x, what was originally invested. So these are like, you know, it's risk capital, um, where a, say, say a, a wealth manager, like an asset fund, for example, has got a hundred million dollars uh, in, uh, in uh, capital to manage. They might like assign five million dollars as risk capital for these like high risk but high growth opportunities that is, as, a, as a function of like uh, statistically, they, they fail a lot. So like, you know, probably 80 to 90 percent of venture funded businesses are likely to fail. But then because you get incredible returns from that uh, one or two in the set of 10 that actually do succeed, uh, you're able to recover all of the fund and then extra. So, you know, venture capital is common with tech startups because, again, they're, you know, focusing on crazy growth and they can inherently return the, the capital when they reach scale. Um, but it's not accessible for most types of entrepreneurs. For tech entrepreneurs, it's usually one of the only ways. Because it's not accessible to most type of entrepreneurs simply because um, most people are not building a high-growth tech business. Um, most people are building an ordinary traditional business that will meet their needs and maybe serve their community. So, you know, access to, for those types of businesses, their best bet, unfortunately, is still credit um, in the form of like a bank loan um, or etc. But it's really unfortunate that our interest rates on the continent are quite high and most first-time entrepreneurs don't own anything to, to sort of secure their loans that they would get. And uh, it's, it is painful, um, but it is a reality of where we are. Like a lot of African republics are 50, 60 years old. We all got our independence around the 60s in sub-Saharan Africa. And, you know, we sometimes compare ourselves to very mature Western countries that have had these types of ecosystems for hundreds of years. Uh, and we're, we're all really young in that sense. So, yep. um, yeah, that's, those, are the, those are the choices that people, I think, have. Um, and then more and more we're seeing social structures form uh, capital. What I mean by this is um, angel types of investments from your family and friends. Uh, but again, you know, the type of angel investment you can raise as an African is not the same as a European because most times some of these people have access to generational wealth. You know, <laughs> it's very different if you come to me as my cousin and you ask oh, yeah. for money to start a business right now versus if our family hadn't had money for the last 150 years. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's a very different game. <laughs> yeah, so I, in that sense, I think... Um, despite the West having its own constraints in terms of uh, what, what challenges entrepreneurs face, um, the, the big problem for a lot of Africans is just that there's not enough money yet. So it's really important that um, the Africans who have made it can put in place sustainable structures for continued generational wealth. And a lot of people don't understand what is meant by generational wealth. I only recently came to understand it myself. Generational wealth is when, on a day-to-day -day basis, you as Mashudu, you're not worried about like, okay, um, where is the rent going to come from for the next 20 years? Or what car am I going to be driving in the next year or two? You're not worried about those problems you've already solved. The things that you're worrying about are, what are my kids' kids? going to be doing in the next 50, 60 years. Mm. Like that's, those are the problems that you're solving on a day-to-day -day basis because for your, for your lifespan, up until the end of your life, you don't see 
how you won't have money. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't think a lot of Africans have got in there. No. I can't even imagine what, that, what that's like for myself. Look, I can't imagine, but I really want it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think being unburdened by the financial pressures of running a startup. Yeah. Um, being unburdened from the pressures of trying to scale fast enough, grow fast enough, have enough revenue um, to be able to be sustainable, um, whether for yourself or your team or just the business itself. I feel like that would be so massive for unlocking um, innovation and creative culture amongst a lot of African, yeah. you know, young African entrepreneurs that could benefit from something. You, you've like hit that. such a, a key point. Like y- you, you can't start innovating when you're hungry. Do you understand? Like if you don't know where your next meal is going to come from, how do you even see far enough for you to innovate and build a business that's going to stand the test of time? Poverty is a problem. Um, and there's, there's an article that was written by a certain uh, Nigerian author, Victor Asimota, um, in the, the Guardian newspaper, I think, where he talks about like, um, when, when African startups get funding, and this is in the context of tech, there must be some room for the founder to first take care of their immediate personal needs. Um, there is this expectation in African societies that if you sort of like make it, you have to take care of um, everyone. Yeah, everyone. Yeah. And that's like a, 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 a tax. People call it black tax. I, I don't know how appropriate the term is, but I think it's, it's accurate. It's a tax that you have, to, you have to first pay before you can begin um, innovating. And if you don't pay this black tax, there's a cognitive load that it, it comes with over your head here. You're trying to do things, you're trying to make progress, but at the same time, you know that things back home are not okay. So you can't you can't think straight, and you must first like you know um, sort out those issues, and then you can start. So it makes it even more expensive um, for African entrepreneurs to to get started because they need to sort out these issues first, and then they can proceed. But it's absolutely necessary that it must happen, and unfortunately, a lot of foreign capital doesn't yet seem to understand. Um, these needs, so it's a bit, we're in a bit of a tricky space. And local capital is available, but then the custodians of that capital, unfortunately, don't have the most faith in African entrepreneurs. So you know, I hope maybe by telling more stories and um, by uh, painting our side of the picture, we might be able to change that. But um, it's something that will require quite a lot of time and um, systemic effort from us as a as a continental community. Uh, to change. Yeah. Um, and what you're talking about there is basically funding and innovation in the African context. Mm. And I don't think I've ever heard that phrase being said, <laughs> <laughs> which tells me that there is something definitely wrong um, with the systems we're building, the developmental and like support structures that we're building for entrepreneurs, for startups. Um, I think. I want to shift gears a bit and go into sort of what do you think um, the trends are across um, the continent in terms of venture scale businesses, in terms of really high growth tech startups as well. Where do you see the growth coming from in terms of industries? Fintech, fintech, fintech. Um, The numbers speak for themselves. Uh, More than 50% of uh, total capital invested into technology companies in the last three years. Um, has gone into fintech. I think in the last year it's almost 60%, and this is like $1.1 billion, according to the investment report that was released by Partech Partners. Um, fintech is where it's at, and mobile money, I think, is huge. Uh, what do you think fintech is, is where it's at? Well, it, it's solving a, a core problem, right? So before you get to 
building the 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 Amazons of Africa and and co people first need to be able to pay for certain types of services. So digitizing infrastructure is still a huge, huge um, part of the work that we need to do as Africans. Um, some of the biggest companies, technology companies that are operating in Africa are pay-as-you-go solar companies. They are just helping people get connected, off-grid, you know, uh, to electricity for the first time. And you know, I've never heard of that. It's, it's nuts, because again, South Africa, is different, but if you if you go into East Africa, companies like Mkopa Solar, Angaza, Kazang, you'll see all of these different types of um, pay-as-you-go solar systems that are huge, and they're they're in every, pretty much every sub-Saharan market, you'll find a pay-as-you-go solar company, and these are very very big companies that are, yeah, so yeah, like pay-as-you-go solar companies, those are quite big in most of sub-Saharan Africa. They're just getting people connected to electricity for the first time. Um, those are big businesses and that, that signals to me that um, we still have a long way to go before we start building all these fancy sophisticated types of systems you know, VR, AR, those things are nice but um, they're not for most of us yet until we sort out the core infrastructure challenges and get people access to certain types of technology for the first time. Subsequently you see that financial services are also very relevant and very hot because people are, are being banked for the first time and with being in a formal um, financial system, um, financial inclusion, then you, you, you have access to certain types of um, social services for the, the first time. The most significant being credit. Yep. And credit enables a lot of things for a lot of people at scale. Um, all of these cars that I see in South Africa, many people would not be able to drive if they couldn't pay for them on a monthly Definitely. basis. So you know all our secrets, you know all our <laughs> hidden... You just know everything yeah, with like, that. Ah, like, I can't you know we don't afford our cars now <laughs> as well. <laughs> so, but you know, you know, if if you want to drive a Mercedes in Kenya, you, you're buying it in cash. What? Upfront, yeah. there's nothing like pay as you go, pay per month. No, no, no. You must go with the full amount and and pick it up. So, yeah, you know, it's a very very different world. Why? Why? Why is that? Because there there's no existing structure for credit. There's no existing structure for credit at scale. Private companies are now giving Kenyans access to credit for the first time, primarily through mobile money, um, but like the vast majority of Kenyans don't have credit cards or anything like that. And they won't need to because um, mobile money has met that need for them in a way that cards would have, and subsequently the problem has been solved. But it's not yet at scale the way it is here, so um, there needs to be a lot more work to be done in that area, and that's that's why fintech is hot because uh, there's there's demand for it, and then other services like healthcare and education, innovators around those areas are again likely to succeed and likely to scale because they're solving such a fundamental problem for many people on the continent, um, and yeah, that's that's where I see things happening. Um, there are occasionally the odd surprises or two, you know, just like a, a niche that somebody discovers that a lot of Africans have a thing for, like content. Um, so one of the, the success stories I think a lot of people need to pay more attention to is a company called Iroko TV, uh, founded by Jason Joku in Nigeria. And they're like an on-demand uh, streaming service, but for Nollywood content. And it's a massive business, I think, um, likely with a valuation well above $100 million now. Um, and, you know, it's, it's an outlier. Um, but we need more of those to happen to be able to identify some of the hidden secrets uh, in the society in terms of problems that are waiting to be solved. 
but all in all, you know, I think the trends are positive. More and more capital is being invested into tech companies in Africa each year by significant amounts. I mean, last year was 108% growth difference. So um, this year, likely, we'll see some, some similar level of growth. Um, those are all good things. It's painful where we are, but we have to start where we are and stop comparing ourselves to the rest of the world and just make do with what we have. So, you know, um, I think yeah, that's, that's I, I think it's such a, a disservice to the work that we're actually doing when, you know, whether from an ecosystem perspective or for, from a support perspective where people go Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley, when the environment is so vastly different, yeah. the challenges are so vastly different, the culture, literally everything is so different and the comparison is so unfair. Yeah, I mean, Silicon Valley was Silicon Valley in the 70s. So in the 70s, these guys were already thinking about next generation tech, messing around with uh, interconnected networks, computers. Uh, and this was primarily for the Department of Defense, the US military. So it was a different level of funding. And that's when it started in the 70s. And then you have, you know, the 80s, 90s, um, the IBM, Apple, those generations. And, and you know, they were, our, our journey is going to be different. I think like our innovations are going to be very different in nature and we need to take advantage of the things that we own. So one of the things that a lot of people don't know is that Sub-Saharan Africa is the number one mobile money region in the world. Not like in, 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 in some parts of the world, like globally. There is nobody who moves more mobile money in the world than sub-Saharan Africans, and by a significant chunk. So this digital currency, uh, digitization of currency, is working well for us in a way that it's not working for anyone else in the world. And that's our thing that we're good at. So why don't we leverage our strengths and you know build on top of that what sort of like solutions and technologies can we layer on top of that to make it more relevant and productive for us. And then maybe the rest of the world can learn a few things from us. Um, and I think I think that's what we need to we need to fall in love with the the process our own process, as opposed to again uh, maybe it's a function of the internet having made the world so small the world has never been so small yeah. but too exposed to everything that's happening and everywhere else it's easy to get distracted, but I feel like if we, if we paid our attention to more of our own stories and what's going on within the continent then we could sort of um, concentrate that effort and get more things done. And yeah, build a better continent for us because we're not going anywhere. Like, yeah, <laughs> we have to make this place work for us. We have to. So, like, the sooner we accept that, and the sooner we start working towards it, as opposed to complaining, um, I think the better it will be for everyone. Yeah. Now that being said, I do see what I, what I would describe as a Pan African Renaissance um, taking place in a lot of African countries, particularly in the capitals. Um, that's where, you, where I usually visit. And you come across people having a conversation about um, very many things, but the general theme that I gather is uh, building the Africa that we want. And um, I think this is quite exciting because um, we don't take into account the, the trauma and the effects um, that the colonial history that we have um, has brought to us. And again, going back to the, how young African republics are, all, most of them are in 50, 55 years old. Um, there's a lot of work that has to be done before you have a fully functional society by some metrics. Um, most of us are first gener generation uh, professionals in our respective fields. 
So myself as a technology entrepreneur, I'm first generation. There was no one who was doing this prior because the, the choices and options for Africans were so limited. Um, and we need to be aware of that to say like, hey, we're we're in, our, we're in our baby steps and it's going to take a lot of time and effort before we can have the types of environments where people can pursue everything that they want to do. But at the same time, we need to be... Um, aware of the reality that we live in an increasingly globalized world yeah. and uh, people are not going to make special exceptions for us because of what we've been through. Um, we need to be globally competitive. Um, it's encouraging that more and more Africans are having these conversations, taking ownership of the narrative and realizing that nobody is coming to save us. So yeah. um, I see this a lot. Uh, the only problem, I guess, right now is that a lot of these conversations are happening in fragmented and isolated spaces. And, you know, Africans in these cities might think that these conversations are not happening elsewhere. I've been fortunate because of my career to have traveled um, extensively across the continent. And, you know, I hear these conversations over and over again, too much delight to say, like, hey, this was the same conversation I was having at Addis Ababa last week. This is really amazing. You live um, an amazing life, was that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it's been great. I mean, this year I have spent five weeks at home in total. The what? rest of the uh, just flying up and down. And it's That's been amazing. Nice. Yeah, it's been nice. So w when you think about, like, taking everything that we've said across, you know, almost an hour of a conversation. Yeah. Say I'm a young entrepreneur starting out. Um, I want to start a business. I want to start a startup. I want to be an entrepreneur. Mm. Right? I believe I have everything you know, intrinsic in terms of my personality, my thinking process, my mindset, my work ethic, mm. to do it. What's the advice you'd give an entrepreneur starting out right now in Africa, right? So across the continent, what is the advice you'd give them for them to be able to compete globally, to understand the challenges that we exist in and the ecosystems we exist in, and to really build something that matters um, for the future? To be patient. <laughs> that's the one thing that I think I have struggled with and that a lot of people struggle with um, it just takes longer here uh, versus the, how long it might take somewhere else in the world and um, if you go in knowing that then it might not surprise you that it takes that long um, building anything of value takes long in, in general but it takes longer here because of the unique constraints that we have so I would think through it carefully. Is entrepreneurship a journey that I want to begin? And can I begin it in a sustainable way? What I mean by this is like, people don't quit your job to become an entrepreneur. Start the thing first, validate. Before you even register a company, like validate your idea and get money in your pocket to, to know that you have something. Then you can start considering how to transition from your full-time employment or doing something else. But if you think that this thing is going to take you five years, plan for 12 years optimistically and 20 realistically. Um, and entrepreneurs who haven't come to, to terms with that caveat might struggle because they'll be expecting things to happen faster than they do. And it's just, it's not a fight you can win. <laughs> so you just like, you just stress yourself up and become really um, frustrated. Yeah, frustrated, upset, and it's really bad for your mental health. So, you know, do it in a way that is sustainable and be patient and don't, you don't have to sacrifice the rest of your life to be an entrepreneur. This like, um, the term, the umbrella term they're using is hustle porn to describe it. It's, it's yeah. Not, yeah, it's it's not nice. It's not it's not 
practical. That's not how businesses are built. You don't you don't build a business by what waking up at five a.m. and going to sleep at nine p.m. Like no, that's not how a business is built. Yeah, you you build it over time by creating value, by paying attention, by listening to your your customers and what the, what they want. Um, but it doesn't happen overnight, and that's something that we have to learn because we we live in a generation of instant gratification. Um, that is exacerbated by our access to technology because, you know, Uber Eats, <laughs> you just press a few buttons and the food appears <laughs> at your door. It's magical. But, you, you, you know, living in that type of environment, um, I feel myself even becoming more desensitized to certain things. I don't have as much patience, but uh, patience is required for this journey and uh, persistence because failure is part of the process. And it's unfortunate that as Africans we've demonized failure. So, you know, is to, you get punished for not being number one in school. Do, do you understand the psychology yeah. behind that? Like what it and does to someone? That's <laughs> not even something that's happened now. This is just the way we've been raised, exactly. the way we so, so been indoctrinated like in the world. Failure is bad, but it's actually not. It's part of the process. There's very little like zero to one successes where somebody just start try something for the first time and goes through no adversity. Uh, very, very few stories are like that. Most journeys are like failing, 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 then you get lucky and you catch your break. So yeah, I would, I would say patience. One word, patience. If, if you think you're patient, well and good, but add more. <laughs> add more. <laughs> <Just> add more. <laughs> thank you so much, Jose. No, thank you, Mash. This has been fantastic. Um, keep doing what you're doing. I think it's important that we need to tell more of our own stories. That's, that's my my theme for the year and something I am living out, um, just telling more of our own stories. Thank you. Thank you. If you listen to this whole podcast, I just want to say thank you. Um, I think this is the first podcast that's gone almost um, at about an hour, which is really, really fascinating. So I'm going to start challenging um, a lot of people who listen to this podcast to start really, really investing in the content a lot more and really, really getting super 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 invested in um, getting as much insights and learnings from the recordings that we're doing um, if you heard a bit of um, buses a bit of cars in the background it's because we're recording from the new JNB hive space and it's got a bit of ambiance um, so when we started the podcast I spoke about um, using Joburg as a canvas and I'm hoping that this, in the edit, it sounds really good somehow. Um, just the end of this podcast, I'm actually going to play one of Wizz's um, favorite songs um, from his first ever startup, um, the music downloading platform. So if you'd like to listen to that, please stick around. Otherwise, um, catch the next episode. Thank you for listening. Leaves in Palace of Anastasia And I in a castle guiding my queen I slay the dragon, girl, you're my everything The reason why I first sing Why wouldn't feel a beast thing Impatient leave when the day was two hearts above But one ring It's alright, so okay, my love is
you enjoyed listening to this podcast please share and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcasting app you can also visit www.lucha.com for more podcasts from the lucha podcast network thank you for listening see you next week